nations will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. Good morning, Riverview. Hey, it's good to be here at the Holt venue with you. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here, but in my pastoral role, I actually don't serve uh, most often here at the Holt venue. I am the West Side venue director. So I'm usually over on the West Side of town, but I'm thankful to be here uh, to worship with all of you this morning. We're in a series here at Riv, as you just saw, uh, called Still. And what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're kind of in the middle of the series. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. But the theme of this series, we just saw in the video, I just want to read it again. It says this, that our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can rest in him. We can be still because God still is. A little bit of context for us as a reminder of what Daniel's about. The book of Daniel recounts a time in the life of the Jewish people when they were in captivity in this enemy nation of Babylon because of their worship of, of idols and, and false gods and the rejection of God, really. We see they were enslaved by this enemy nation, and they were taken away from Jerusalem where they lived and where they worshiped. And a part of that group of people was a young man named Daniel. Daniel was a teenager, most likely, when, when this happened, him and his friends. And he was chosen with these other men as a younger guy uh, by the evil enemy king to be indoctrinated into this Babylonian culture. They tried to make these guys really Babylonian. And through the book so far, we've just seen incredible faithfulness by Daniel and his friends. We've seen them continue to worship God amidst terrible circumstances. And if you were here with us last week in chapter 4, you, you may remember uh, the dramatic and life-changing events that happened in this enemy king's life. This was King Nebuchadnezzar. He's really been a key figure in the book of Daniel so far. He's really the great villain of the Jewish people. Everything that's happened to them were by his hand. It was, we see that it was God's sovereignty that was, hap- that was doing that, but really Nebuchadnezzar was the person at the center of their persecution. Everything that had happened to Daniel, everything that had happened to his friends have really been at his hands. What we saw last week, we saw God display his sovereignty in, in King Nebuchadnezzar's life by humbling him, by, by taking away his kingdom until he repented of his sin of pride and arrogance. And the last verse of chapter 4 is a great summary of what happened uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's chapter 4, verse 37. It said, and this is King Nebuchadnezzar saying this. It says, he, meaning God, is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He, uh, I believe he came to faith in God through, through God's work in his life. And this is a great end of chapter 4, but it's also a great beginning of chapter 5. It's a good transition verse because today we're going to meet a new king. Nebuchadnezzar's out. There's someone else on the throne. And we're going to see what happens to him due to his pride and his arrogance as well. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to chapter 5 of Daniel. This is where we're going to camp out for most of our time. Uh, this morning, we're going to go through the whole chapter, and we're going to start in the very beginning, chapter one or chapter 5, verse 1. says this, 
King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. So if you've noticed Daniel, the book of Daniel, there's not really many breaks in the narrative. Um, You know, you can kind of read different books of the Bible and think, oh, this is probably the next day. But this isn't the next day. Uh, Most likely between chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's probably about 20 years uh, that have passed. And there's been a couple other kings that that have shown up. But now it's King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar is thought to actually be the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Also, so it was 20 years between chapter 4 and 5, but it's thought that it's about 60 years from chapter 1 of Daniel. So remember, Daniel was a teenager, most likely when he was taken. Now he's most likely in his 70s or his 80s. And his entire life, he is, as a captive, he's been in service to the Babylonian rulers and the kings. Okay? And we're introduced to Belshazzar here, and what he's doing is he's just having this massive party. For him and his nobles. The text says that this was a great feast for a thousand people. This, and those thousand people, they were the movers and the shakers of Babylon, okay? These were those in power. And we don't really have any context as to, you know, what they were doing, what they were celebrating. But as we read on in this chapter, we do see that it was most likely just this debauched party uh, of worshiping their, their false gods with, with wine and sex and all those other things. And, and all of this was happening in the city of Babylon, which was the biggest city in the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, it was really this hub of luxury and sophistication. There's, there's historians who have written about Babylon, the city. One of them was this 5th century Greek historian named Herodotus. And he wrote that Babylon surpassed in wonder any city in the known world. And one of the things that set Babylon apart, it's thought, were the walls that surrounded the city. So Babylon was actually built on the Euphrates River, which means it had this massive freshwater source, right, for for fishing and for freshwater, all these other things. But it's thought that Babylon was surrounded by this massive wall. Herodotus wrote that the wall was 56 miles long, 80 feet thick, and 320 feet high. That's a big wall. Okay, and these are the biggest numbers I've found. Some historians are like, that's exaggerated. But like, I like, we're going to use the biggest numbers, okay? Because it's, it's just, it's fun. Um, so for reference, a wall that big could stretch to Novi, Michigan in length. It's the height of a football field standing up. You stand a football field on its end. That's how high the wall is. And the thickness of that wall is from me, probably more to the back of the auditorium. That's how thick the wall is, okay? So you're not getting through that wall. You're not getting over that wall, okay? So this is the setting of what's happening in this feast. The Babylonians, they're just sitting pretty inside their big walled town, and they're just living it up, okay? Verse 2, chapter 5, says this. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, so the party's continuing. It's continuing on into the night, and we read that Belshazzar is under the influence of wine. The classy way of saying He's drunk, okay? Belshazzar is not thinking right. And in his stupor, he does a terrible thing. It's just a bad, bad choice. He orders that something be brought to him that King Nebuchadnezzar had acquired from the temple in Jerusalem 60 years ago. He wanted the gold and silver vessels that had been stolen to be brought to him because he thought, hey, why don't we use those as wine glasses? 
Now today, we may not understand the significance of this. We may be like, wait, what's the big deal? This was not a little joke. Okay, this wasn't some drunken charade. No, this was a blatant and arrogant, defiant act of arrogance and pride against the one true God. We read back in the second verse of this entire book, chapter one, verse two, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken these vessels when he laid siege to Jerusalem. But you know what he did with them? He didn't drink from them. He put them in his treasury, like his trophy case, right? His most valuable things. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar would walk in his treasury and just wonder at his own power when he would look at the vessels from Jerusalem. But these vessels were hugely important to the Jews, Because they're what the priests would use in the temple to worship God. Their purpose, alongside the other things in the temple, it was to acknowledge that God was true, that he alone was to be worshiped. They represented God in his presence with his people, but now they were gone. They were in the hands of the enemy, and they here are being used like a red solo cup at a college party. (laughs) Not a good thing, right? They're being used to celebrate the gods of Babylon. And it wasn't only the king doing this. We read it's him, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. It says they used these and they praised their gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what's going to happen? Let me tell you, something spectacular (laughs) is about to happen. Verse 5, chapter 5, here's what it says. At that moment the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale. His thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Okay, so last week when I was preaching Daniel 4 at the Westside venue, I made this comment, like, I feel like the book of Daniel should be a Netflix series. (laughs) Like, I don't understand why it's not yet. Uh, I mean, just picturing what's happening, every single chapter is just an episode, right? I mean, just picture what's happening here. And if you've ever heard of someone saying, well, the writing's on the wall, you know where that's from. That's from Daniel chapter 5, that phrase. What that means is that something bad is going to happen real soon. Right? When someone says, oh, you know, at work, the writing's on the wall, that means they're going to lose their job. Like, that's what people say. But that's an apt thing to come from this scene because something bad just happened. As Belshazzar and his nobles are drinking from these gold and silver vessels, a disembodied hand shows up out of nowhere. Floating hand, no body, no arm, just whoop, right here, nothing else. And it starts writing on the wall. So we see Belshazzar sober up quick. (laughs) <laughs> don't we? Oh, man. And we, and we see it. His face turns pale. He soils himself. His knees knock together. Remember the cartoons where they're like, oh, no. Like, that's Belshazzar. His knees are knocking together. He is scared. And he should be. And we see what he does. He then yells in verse 7. Look how this continues. It says, the king shouted, to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, the diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale. Maybe he got less pale, and then he turned pale again. And his nobles were bewildered. So Belshazzar does what Nebuchadnezzar did in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, 
When something happened that alarmed him, he brought in the experts of Babylon, the guys that, had, that could figure it out, right? But none of them could. None of them knew. What we see as we continue on here, that someone remembers that there's someone in Babylon that, could, that can do what the king's asking about. The, the queen of, of Babylon, she says, hey, you need to go find this guy named Daniel because he's the one that can do what you're asking. So Belshazzar finds Daniel, and we see this in verse 13. It says, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Okay, so Belshazzar has heard about Daniel from the queen, right? And he, Daniel had this reputation of he's the guy that gets stuff done. He is the one that can do what the king is asking for. He did it for Nebuchadnezzar two times that we know of in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 4. And Belshazzar, he's like, hey, if you can do this, if you can tell me what this means, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you wealth and power and prestige. You're going to be third in line. You're going to be the third most powerful person in the kingdom. And I love 70 to 80-year-old Daniel's response. <laughs> Verse 17, look what he says. Oh, where is it? Right here. Then Daniel answered the king, you can keep your gifts. <laughs> give your rewards to someone else. It's like, perfect. It's like, no, thanks. Uh, but however, I will read the inscription for the king. And make the interpretation known to him. So Daniel is like, hey, there's nothing you can give me that I would want, okay? I don't need that, but I will do for you what you're asking. You're mad. And then he starts actually with Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to paraphrase 18 through 22. The first thing he does is he's like, hey, Belshazzar, what you need to know about that, what's on that wall, you need to remember about your grandpa. King Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember what happened to him, how God humbled him? how he was exalting himself in his kingdom and how God brought him low, you need to remember that. Because what's going to happen to you is you are going to be humbled as well. He says this in verse 22. Look at what he writes, or look what he says. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. You did not do, you did not turn back to God, even though you knew all this. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you've not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand, who controls the whole course of your life. Belshazzar, you need to know... <laughs> You've exalted yourself against God. Your life and your worship have had you at the center. And this was seen by the mockery that you made of God tonight by taking these gold and silver vessels and worshiping your gods with them who don't exist, by the way. Do you notice Daniel says that? He's like, your gods don't see, they don't hear, or they, they don't understand. But then look at what Daniel says in verse 23. You have not glorified God who holds your life breath in his hand. You have that picture. It controls the whole course of your life. 
Here again in Daniel, as James said earlier, we see God's sovereignty, his control, his power, his rule over all creation. Daniel reminds Belshazzar that the reason he is still alive at that moment, it's not because of his fake gods of wood and stone and iron. No, it's the one true God, the God of Daniel, who holds the life of people in his hands. Daniel then gets the interpretation He tells Belshazzar what's on the wall and what it means. This is verse 24 and 25. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Peres means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel does what the king asks. He's like, all right, this is what that means. That hand God sent, this is what he wrote to you. Your kingdom is over. Your life of sin and pride and arrogance has been weighed and it's deficient. You're not good enough. Your life is lacking, Belshazzar, and your kingdom is going to be taken from you and it's going to be ruled by your enemy. Here we see immediate judgment by God of Belshazzar. With Nebuchadnezzar, remember, God removed him from his kingdom until he acknowledged his sin. Not with Belshazzar. No opportunity for that. The end of his life and his kingdom and his rule is on the brink. The last couple of verses, verse 29, says this. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel gets all the things he didn't want. (laughs) Belshazzar lives up to one thing. He's like, I'll give you what you want. But then look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. That very night. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. You know, historical documents show how this happened. The year was 539 BC. This is the fall of Babylon. You know, during this time period, there was another earthly kingdom that was growing, that was, that was growing in power, and it was the Medi-Persian Empire. If you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, it's thought that this was the next empire on the statue. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. The arms and chest of silver is thought to be the Medi-Persian Empire. And what, and what happened was they were camped outside of Babylon that very night. But remember those walls, football field high, 56 miles long, 80 feet thick. How are they going to get in? They're not going to go through them or over them. They went under them. The Persian army diverted the water of the Euphrates River into canals. A brilliant tactical move. If you think about it, if you're diverting water away from a river, what's going to happen? It's going to lower. So it's thought that the Persian army lowered the river, walked in to Babylon uncontested. Why was it uncontested? There was a party going on. The Babylonians, the nobles, thousand people were partying, and the Persians went in, took the city, and sacked Babylon. So we're about halfway through the book of Daniel. And what we've seen in five chapters is we've really seen the 70 years of captivity of the Jewish people. Back at the end of chapter one, 
you remember, it said Daniel remained in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. So Cyrus and Darius, they were the the leaders of this new empire. And next week in chapter 6, we're going to see what happens with Daniel under this new king in this new kingdom with the Persians. But as we've read through this series, as we've read through Daniel, we've been in this series for over a month now, we've seen some common themes, haven't we? I mean, we've seen threads working their way all throughout this book, and we see them in chapter 5, too. The first one we see, we see three. The first one we see is we see the folly of human pride. Pride causes us to live our lives focused primarily on ourselves. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, it all comes through this filter of self first. How is this going to impact me? See that good thing I did? That was my effort, my power for my glory. We look at the good things in our lives and we attribute them to ourselves rather than to God and his provision. We saw that last week. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar on top of his palace? After Daniel had warned him, he walked around, he looked, and he shouted at the top of his lungs, look at my kingdom. This is my power on display. This is for my glory. And we see it this week in Belshazzar as he mocks God by using the gold and silver vessels intended for his worship as wine glasses. Pride and arrogance, they lead us somewhere. They lead us to self-worship instead of God-worship. What does this pride look like today? And I think pride can look a lot of different ways. Um, You know, there's a couple, though, that really have stuck with me from, from Daniel. You know, I remember about 15 years ago, there was this movement brewing that was called the New Atheism Movement. You know, some prominent philosophers and professors, and they were trying to passionately discredit religion. And they were trying to promote this humanistic worldview. This was people like Richard Dawkins and and Chris Hitchens and and Sam Harris. And this, this movement, it revealed a pride that existed in a very combative way. It was militantly anti-Christian and anti-faith. And this movement shared how Christianity was a worldview you could not have if you had intellect or reason, or if you considered yourself smart at all. And this is where the pride was revealed. Their ways were above any thoughts or evidence of God and religion. And this movement still exists, still out there. I don't really think it's as strong as it was five to 10 years ago. Because I think in the last 10 years, there's been this different self-oriented, prideful worldview that's bubbled up. And instead of being seen in anger or, or combativeness, you know what it's seen in? Apathy. People just don't care anymore. Instead of being atheistic, they're just uninterested. You know, the spiritual trend of younger people, instead of atheism now, it's no affiliation. Instead of being an atheist, they're like, don't care. That's how people feel. And while some people today reject God like Belshazzar, a lot of people, they aren't even at the party. They don't want to be there, which is still a form of pride, isn't it? Their lives are still about them, what they want, and they just aren't interested in God, who he may be or what he may think. Regardless of how pride is revealed, whether it's in anger, whether it's in apathy, whether it's in boasting, the Bible shows us how pervasive the sin of pride truly is. 
It can be revealed in a massive feast, mocking God, or it can be revealed in a human heart that continues to quietly and independently worship itself instead of God. Pride isn't something that we're immune to as followers of Jesus. Yes, our pride is nailed to the cross. It's dealt with permanently. But that sin, we can easily be pulled back into self-worship instead of God-worship, can't we? Where does pride show up in your life? Where are you tempted to give yourself glory instead of God? Does your pride show up in anger? Is it showing up in apathy? Is it showing up in boasting or in some other way? Well, wherever that is happening, God's word tells us clearly what we should do with any sin. It's acknowledge it and turn from it. Admit, yes, I am prideful and turn back to Jesus. Let him sit on the throne of your life instead of you. We've seen the sin of human pride, the folly of human pride over and over again in Daniel. Another thread that we've seen in this book, though, is we've seen faithful witness amidst hardship. I mean, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they glorified God amidst terrible circumstances. I mean, think about it. Daniel continued to worship God while living in Babylon and in service to their kings for most of his life. And the final example, final example that we have of this we're going to see next week in chapter 6 as Daniel faces persecution. But over and over again, we see how they continue to worship God and stay faithful to him amidst living in a kingdom that was against who they were. You know, I truly believe staying faithful to God, it comes from trusting in his word. Daniel did that. It really seems that Daniel understood why he and the rest of the Jewish people were in captivity. It was because of their sin and the rejection of God. And, and, you know, and they had thought maybe that God had given up on them. That, he had, that it was his hand that led them to exile, which it was. But it was also God's hand that ended the Babylonian kingdom this very night. The most powerful of the ancient world at that time. And this, this really reveals the greatest thread we see in the book of Daniel. We've seen it last week, every week before. We're going to see it every week forward. It's the power of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty of God is this belief we have as Christians that all things happen in the world and, that are, and it's under God's rule under God's control. If some things happened that God didn't know about or that God couldn't do something about, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be all-knowing. He wouldn't be all-powerful. God is sovereign. And while we see this over and over again in the book of Daniel, we see it all throughout the Bible. The Bible is so cool. It's an amazing book. It's God's very word to us that he wrote through human authors who were living through history. And much of the history and events that the Bible recounts, they overlap with one another. We know about the 70 years in exile of the Jewish people through Daniel, but we also know about it through a prophet named Jeremiah. He and Daniel were contemporaries. They lived during the Babylonian captivity at the same time. Jeremiah was a little bit older, and he died during the earlier days of King Nebuchadnezzar. But as a prophet, what would happen was God would give Jeremiah revelation. He'd give him words to say and say, go tell the people. And Jeremiah would. And the people often would not listen. But remember what prophecy is. Noel told us this a few weeks ago. Prophecy is history written in advance. 
So God would say something and then it would come to pass in the future. And Jeremiah prophesied about everything that was happening to Daniel and the rest of the Jewish people. Look at this prophecy at the very beginning of their captivity. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. God told Jeremiah, who told the people that at the end of 70 years in Babylon, that is when I'm going to act on your behalf. And it happened this night with Belshazzar and Daniel 5. That prophecy was fulfilled as God's prophecies are. God lived up to his word as he always does. But look at what else God told the Jewish exiles as they were marching to, to be captives in Babylon. This is the word that he gave Jeremiah. Jeremiah put in a letter to these Jewish people. This is Jeremiah 29. This is a little bit long. It's about 10 verses, so stick with me. But just listen to what God tells the Jews to do while they are enslaved in Babylon for the 70 years. Look at this. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that are deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. You'd think he'd say, fight back, <laughs> Right? Give them everything you got. Look what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. He's talking about Babylon. Verse 10, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Do you see the hand of God, his sovereignty? Imagine being one of those Jewish people marching to Babylon, leaving your home, leaving the temple that where you worship God and being forced to live in a city, in a kingdom that was ruled by your enemy. If that were me, do you know what I would think? God has abandoned us. He's not with us. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He is weak. He's not in control. But none of that was true. Part of God's plan to prosper his people and to give them a future was a time of hardship and exile. I mean, God told them, while you're in Babylon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to thrive. I want you to flourish. I want you to build houses. I want you to have gardens. I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. Prosper where you are. But not only that, they weren't only to live their lives for themselves. Do you see what he tells them? Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. The city where the king takes wine glasses that were mine, my vessels. The city where the king mocks me. I want you 
to pray for that city. Because if it thrives, you're going to thrive. And in the middle of this passage, we read Jeremiah 29, 11, which some have said is the most misapplied Bible verse in the Bible. <laughs> it's a popular coffee mug. It's a great verse, right? It's a coffee mug verse, a cross-stitch verse, bumper sticker verse, all those. But it's a verse we, we often share without looking at the context. It's a verse we apply often without looking at the context. It says this, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. The context of this verse is not a high school graduation. It's not a wedding ceremony. Those words were written to Jews who were walking toward exile, toward a time of their life where they probably wondered about God and his sovereignty and his power. But God's words were true. They're always true. The Jewish people, after 70 years, were restored. They were given a future and a hope. And the Bible being the amazing book that it is, you can read about it. It's the book of Ezra. Go read that this week. You see this Persian king, Cyrus, show up in Ezra, chapter 1, or Cyrus, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra. God is sovereign. Everything that happens in this world is under his rule and his control. And we see that sovereignty not only displayed in God's word, we see it today. God is still sovereign, even over kingdoms and earthly rulers that think nothing of him, that may mock him, that are like Belshazzar. We see also God's sovereignty and how he continues to draw people to himself and save sinners Remember what Daniel told Belshazzar in verse 24. He says this. Let me find it. You have not glorified, this is what he says. You have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand, who controls the whole course of your life. That truth can be very encouraging or very discouraging to somebody. You know what it was for Belshazzar? It was an indictment. God's given you this kingdom. This isn't yours. You've done nothing to get here. It's his sovereignty that put you where you are. And guess what? You've mocked him. For Belshazzar's life to be in the hands of God would be a scary thought for him, wouldn't it? But for followers of Jesus, that verse is not an indictment. It's a comfort it's a beautiful reminder of our eternal security. We are secure in the Father's hand. We see that explicitly in John chapter 10. Jesus is being asked, who are you? Make it plain. Are you the Messiah? Like what's going on? And Jesus says this about those who would believe in him. John 10 verse 29, my father who has given them, given believers to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's Jesus' claim. I am the Messiah. It's me. While God's sovereignty is displayed in Daniel, we see his sovereignty in the Gospels. We see it in the life, in the mission of Jesus, through his life, his death for sin, and his resurrection. If we have put our faith in the gospel and Jesus' work for us, we can rest 
in God's sovereignty as we believe that we aren't in control. That's good news. We can actually pursue lives of humility instead of pride, anger pride, apathetic pride, boastful pride. And we can continue to remain faithful witnesses to a world around us that needs God, the sovereign God of all, in his grace. Let's pray. God, as I think about Daniel 5, I'm just, I'm reminded of just the power of your word. God, that you have not left us to wonder about who you are, who we are, who Jesus is, what this life is about. You've made it plain. You've made it clear. Our lives are to be about you and your glory, not our own. And God, even reading Daniel 4 and reading Daniel 5 over the last two weeks, I'm just convicted of my own pride. The things I look at in my life and think, look what I did. Instead of thinking, God, how great are you that you would give me this? God, we thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you that each and every week as we open up your word, we're reminded of your sovereignty in this book. How during a time of the the lives of the Jews where they probably were so scared and so frightened, God, you never lost sight of them. (laughs) Your word is true. God, when you speak, when you say things will come to pass, they will and they do. God, we thank you so much for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.